Welcome to the Medical Association of Georgia's award-winning top doc show. With more than 8,000 members who care for patients in every specialty and practice setting, MAG is the leading voice for physicians in Georgia. Go to mag.org to join MAG if you're a physician in Georgia. And thanks to Alliant Health Solutions for its support as a sponsor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Top Docs. I'm your host and MAG CEO, Donald Pomisano. Today's guest is Dr. Michelle Al, who's an anesthesiologist with Emory St. Joseph Hospital in Atlanta, a MAG member, and our most recent graduate of the Georgia Physician Leadership Academy that's put on by the MAG Foundation. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Al is also going to discuss her clinical experience with COVID-19, as well as her campaign to be elected to the Georgia Senate's 48th District, which includes Johns Creek, Duluth, and parts of Lawrenceville, Peachtree Corners, and Swanee. I should also note that this is Dr. Al's second appearance on Top Docs, which just passed the 1 million views milestone. Welcome back, Dr. Al, and thank you for joining us, especially during this very busy time. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Al, as a, as a frontline physician and an anesthesiologist, um, can you tell our audience a little bit how your role has changed since the COVID-19 epidemic began? Sure, Don. So I think that for many physicians, uh, COVID-19 has really changed essentially every aspect of our daily work lives. And that's certainly true for me as well. It changes um, the workflow that we have at the hospital, it changes the type of work we've been doing with patients, and it changes our approach to taking care of patients. So for me specifically, like many anesthesiologists, I've been spending much less time in the operating room, which is where I usually uh, am during the day, uh, because we've only been doing urgent and emergency cases up until really this, this week. Um, this is in an effort not just to protect our staff and patients from unnecessary exposures in the community, but also to conserve supplies for COVID patients who really tend to be very resource intensive when it comes to um, supplies. Um, however, even as our time in the operating room has started to whittle down, we found ourselves spending more times in the ICU setting. So at my hospital, for example, we've decided that the emergency airway team that's tasked with intubating COVID patients should be headed up by a physician anesthesiologist. The reason that we decided to do that is because the act of intubation is really one of the riskiest procedures to perform on a COVID patient because it's a procedure that, as we know, aerosolizes the virus from the airway where it lives into the environment where it can be breathed in by other people. Therefore, it really stands to reason that the person putting in that breathing tube should be the person with most expertise in the procedure because you really want to get that tube in as quickly and as smoothly as possible to minimize the risk to everyone else. So that's something a little bit extra that we've added to our place. Um, and of course, as someone taking care of COVID patients, sometimes during these high risk procedures, you're very aware of the, uh, of the risk that you're taking on and what that means for your colleagues and what that means for your family. So I've become very meticulous about um, hygiene, uh, especially before leaving work every day, for example, I shower and change at the hospital before I get home. And when I get home, I shower and change again. I think it's these little things that we do just to make it feel like um, it's stuff that we can control because the larger things we really can't control. Well, I, I do follow you on Twitter, and, and I want to thank you for everything that you've been putting out there, especially related to um, what you're going through as, as a physician, but also treating your patients uh, during this COVID-19 epidemic. Um, so what are some of the biggest challenges you face when uh, you provide care to COVID-19 patients? So I say that obviously this issue of infection control and risk that we just touched upon is um, a big challenge when taking care of COVID patients. But on a broader level, I think that uh, the coronavirus and all its attendant concerns can really fundamentally change the way that we relate to 
and take care of our patients, and that's really been a challenge because um, the measures that we take to minimize infectivity and risk when taking care of these patients injects a distance in our relationships. For example, like our faces are always covered now and we're speaking from six feet away, we're touching patients less, so there's no more, you know, like the handshake, hand on the shoulder, all these things that kind of um, humanize this connection and bring people closer to us. Sometimes we're even um, not even talking right next to the patient, we're speaking through a window or speaking through a baby monitor as often happens mm. either um, in the ICU or sometimes in the operating room where we have a COVID positive patient. And so it feels easier to lose that sort of warm human touch that's really important when taking care of people, especially when they're sick or scared or in an extreme uh, situation. Patients also now um, don't have the benefit of having friends and family members close since yeah. most hospitals have pretty strict um, visitation policies. Um, so they restrict visitors and it's been a real challenge to not be able to rely on all these little warm human touches that convey not just um, the practice of healthcare itself, but the practice of caring. It makes it, it makes that part much more difficult. Well, it, it, and I, in, in looking at the different media sources from around the country and different reports from physicians, we're seeing that physicians are obviously under a lot of stress. Um, and I think that's related a lot to, as, as you were pointing out, that, that kind of loss of human touch with that patient because of the protections that are needed right now. So um, towards that end, how well are the physicians and the allied staff at the hospital holding up right now? Okay. Well, I can only speak for the staff that I work with. But I think our team is, um, is holding up remarkably well, which is not to say that people still aren't scared or anxious, because they are, because everyone is, right? But I think that a lot of us, the people I've spoken with, are really fortified with a sense of purpose in this moment, and that sort of helps bolster them. I think it's become apparent to everyone the importance of the type of work that we do, and um, it's a difference we can make in people's lives in this moment where a lot of people need help. I think it's um, probably crystallized a sense of duty for many, and it's crystallized the sense that we are here to serve our community. So I really think that the support from the community also, the reciprocal support back has meant a lot to us, not just in the form of donated supplies, but also little things like donated meals or thank you notes that I've mm -hmm. seen posted up all around in the ER and the ICU to staff, things like that. It really helps people know that, um, you know, even though we might be on the front line, there is a whole community of people right there behind us to help us do our jobs. Well, good. And then, and, and to follow up on that, um, our, our, our board of directors met this weekend and we're continuing our work on our resiliency committee to, because we, we are trying to anticipate when this epidemic moves past us and life kind of slows down again, how do we make sure that, the, that, that as an association, we're there for the physicians as well? Um, so you're unique in that you're an MD, but also you have a master's in public health. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about what are some of your biggest public health concerns related to COVID-19? Sure. And that's a really important issue. I think one of the things that I worry about the most are the health disparities that this epidemic has highlighted. As we know, COVID-19 is caused by viruses and viruses do not discriminate. However, one thing that we've seen in the progression of this virus nationally is it does not seem to strike all groups equally. What we've seen is that people of color have been more severely affected um, in this epidemic, and in particular, black Americans are more likely to die of COVID-19 than any other group in the United States. And there's been a lot more news stories about this now because it's becoming very obvious that this is the case. I think there was a piece in the Washington Post just recently, maybe yesterday or just a couple of days ago, that in fact reported that in a survey sample of eight hospitals in Georgia, over 80% of the COVID-19 cases were in African-American patients. Oh, wow. but the population of Georgia is only about 30% African-American. 
Right. So obviously African-American patients are very overrepresented in this sample of, um, of patients that are in the hospital. So I think it's going to be important moving forward just from an MPH point of view um, to figure out the reasons for these racial disparities and the effects of things like um, socioeconomic and occupational factors in transmission, because only in understanding this can we really aim to control the spread. Um, so what we're finding is basically this pandemic's unmasking some of these basic truths that those of us in the public health sphere have long observed for other illnesses too. And one of those truths is that systemic inequities in our society and healthcare system lead to differential outcomes for the patients that we care for. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think this, uh, I think COVID-19 has really shown the importance of public health and having the appropriate funding for public health. Because uh, when you have an outbreak like we have had and the, account, and the economy comes to such a shutdown, you see the disastrous effects when public health is not uh, funded to where it should be. So I think we all see the importance now of, of public health. Um, so so how, can, how can Georgians protect themselves from COVID-19? Well, I think to protect ourselves, these actions fall into two sort of broad categories, which are personal responsibility and community responsibility. So when it comes to personal responsibility, I'm uh, more than aware that these past few months have been incredibly difficult for everyone. Like we talked about, the economic devastation has been massive and really hard to comprehend. Um, nationally, same thing, you know, everyone across the country is hurting. And many people don't have the luxury of being able to shelter in place or work at their jobs remotely or do all these things that we can do to keep ourselves safe. From an individual standpoint, I think that what Georgians can do is really to comply with best practices from a public health standpoint. So these things include staying at home, um, maintaining physical distancing as much as is possible. Maintaining physical distancing um, outside of the home when you can, I'm saying like when you go to the park or, you know, go to the supermarket with use of face masks in public, that can go some distance to helping contain the spread. Self-quarantine if ill, obviously, and scrupulous hand hygiene, as we always talk about. As for the community, my recommendations really are the same because those of us who have the ability to stay home or work remotely or do all these things to keep ourselves safe, should do so to minimize the risk to everyone else who can't take these measures. I don't think it's ever been as apparent as right now that the health of individuals is intimately tied to the health of the community at large. So we really do have to be mindful of the responsibilities that we have, not just to ourselves and our families, but to each other. Well, I want to thank you for that explanation because that was clear and concise and one of the best explanations that I've heard on the need and, and why social distancing and the staying at home is so important. Because I think sometimes, you know, people, forget that you know the mask is protecting those around you from you, you know your own germs and i think that thank you for doing that because that really i think provides clarity that's 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 needed out there as well so who is included in, in some of these high risk groups um that uh would be groups of, of great concern with COVID 19. that's a great question so per the cdc as of their latest guidelines and what we know at present these are the people at highest risk for severe illness as a result of the novel coronavirus. These are people 65 and older, people who live in nursing homes or long-term care facilities, and also people of all ages who have underlying medical conditions that are not well controlled. And these particular health conditions include people with chronic lung disease or poorly controlled moderate to severe asthma, people who have serious heart conditions, people who are immunocompromised. And this includes, you know, I just wanna be clear about this, people who are immunocompromised 
don't just include people who are on chemo or HIV patients. They also include patients who take chronic steroids and patients who smoke, okay? Uh, patients with severe obesity, meaning they have a BMI of over 40, are in a risk group. People with diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and people with liver disease are all in this um, risk of, uh, you know, have comorbid conditions that make the risk of right. coronavirus. Again, these are the people who are at higher risk, but I think the early messaging early on in this epidemic that this novel coronavirus was really only a big problem for the elderly or the infirm really did a huge disservice to earlier efforts to control the disease. Because first, first of all, we see young healthy patients with no comorbidities having severe courses of COVID-19 about a quarter of the time. Okay, so that's wow. a significant portion. Secondly, younger, healthier patients might be more likely to be asymptomatic carriers or people with very mild symptoms and spread the disease to vulnerable populations. Because you know if you're feeling okay or not feeling that bad, then you're more likely to be out in the world doing your thing where other people are. So I think it's comforting sometimes for young, healthy people to hide behind their lack of risk factors and feel that this whole thing is someone else's problem, that it's not, it's not a risk to them. And I assure you, I assure you that it is not. This is everyone's problem and we should be treating it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And then how has Georgia's outbreak compared to some of the hotbeds that you hear about New York and, and Washington State? Right. So every state is obviously very different in its disease dynamics and its approach to containment. You know, every state has a different um, governor, different rules. Every every approach is different. I think that obviously Georgia has a lower number of cases by capita than some of the biggest epicenters of the disease, including New York and New Jersey. Uh, this may owe partially to the nature of living in Georgia. You know, on the whole, our population is a bit more spread out. Mm -hmm. uh, fewer people take public transportation, you know, that kind of thing. The density is less, right? However, despite these advantages, Georgia really isn't doing that well overall. We rank among the lowest in our testing availability in the state and among the highest in our case test positive rate. And these two things are related because if your case test positive rate is above 10%, the WHO says that you're not testing enough. Um, overall, we're starting out also with a more unhealthy population, which puts our citizens at more risk of developing serious disease, as we discussed when we talked about the risk factors. And also, we're starting out with a lower uh, percentage of people who have health insurance. So even before this epidemic, also, we were in a rural health care crisis with huge swaths of the state without sufficient uh, hospital services or resources. And these are the places that are going to be uh, at risk for developing outbreaks of the coronavirus, including like in Albany, which is a rural area underserved by the healthcare system. So while we do have a lower per capita caseload, we are uniquely vulnerable in a way that some other states are not. And I'm concerned that when COVID gets a good toehold in a few of these susceptible populations and areas, the cases may pick up severely or explode. So, so what is your biggest concern about COVID-19 going forward? Um, so in the end, uh, public health really has to be about making it as easy as possible for everyone to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. In this current climate, I fear that there's a lot of mixed messaging. Um, I think that we're making it very difficult to understand what exactly the right thing is. So my concern is that over time, the general public will sort of um, attenuate to the threat of the disease and that slackening of public health measures such as physical distancing and masking is going to cause a huge spike in cases uh, that will be difficult for hospital systems to handle. I also worry obviously about unnecessary loss of life. I worry about the risks to my colleagues over the protracted course of this pandemic, just because we're not really consistent with how we're applying public health measures and recommendations. Right, right. Well, no, that, that those are excellent points. And is there anything you'd like to say to your fellow physicians and, and allied staff? 
Yeah, I do. I, I want to say that I've never been more proud to be a physician working alongside all of you um, and that you all inspire me every day with the hard work and dedication that you have to your patients. Uh, I don't think that we're all going to be the same after this is over, but I'm hoping that the lessons we're learning right now will help us come out stronger on the other side and practice better medicine. Well, I, I can honestly say thank you from, from all of us at MAG for everything that you're doing and all of your colleagues and all the allied health staff. I mean, you're putting your lives out there and we constantly tell patients, you know, they want to see you, but not under these conditions. So, you know, please, you know, listen to what the CDC is putting out there, social distance, stay at home and all, you know, all the, all the recommendations. So uh, let me just turn, turn the conversation a little bit. Um, how is your campaign coming along? Yeah, that's a big pivot, right? So yeah. I have to say, this is the interesting part. This is the most interesting part that I have to say is, as a Chinese-American physician with a public health degree running for office during a pandemic, all of this, my life is pretty, pretty interesting. However, you know, I am a first-time candidate, right? I haven't run for office before, and I'm not particularly married to the idea of how a campaign should run because I haven't done this before, nor do I have some really long-developed sense of what things are usually like, despite the fact of people telling me. So this is all new to me. So because of that, I'm just rolling with it. Because regardless, this is my first time doing it, right? Uh, we were really one of the first campaigns in the state to very early on suspend all in-person campaign events. So that mm -hmm. means no canvassing, no meet and greets, no fundraising events, nothing. We did this very early because when you run on a public health platform, you really do have to be a leader on mm -hmm. public health. And that's what we did to keep our community safe and we knew it was the right thing to do, even if it was personally disadvantageous to the campaign. Uh, campaigning virtually doesn't obviously have the intimacy or the warmth of campaigning in person. You know, just like I was saying with patient care, it injects a distance. There's no substitute for looking into someone's eyes directly to talking to them face to face, not just being like a head in a box talking on Zoom. You know, these are, these are distancing uh, factors. However, one advantage that I will notice, just to pick a silver lining to this cloud, is that in this era of Zoom, is it's now actually possible for me to attend, let's say, two or three campaign stops in one evening, even if they right. overlap without any driving. So I think that's actually <laughs> driving less. No, absolutely. And um, and I want to thank you for being a leader and doing that, because um, shortly after you had decided to take this approach, you started to see other campaigns doing that. But so your leadership, thank you. And I think that's why um, especially this has highlighted the need for physicians in the, in the General Assembly, because you have that insight. Um, and it's, it's, it's on, on health policy issues, but also addressing budget issues where appropriate funding should go. So that's why uh, we're very excited about your campaign and very happy uh, that, we, that, that GAMPAC, our political action committee for the Medical Association of Georgia, endorsed you uh, in the 48th district. So congratulations and, you know, thank you so much. Thank you. So, so in, in terms of uh, for our audience, what should people do if they want to get involved or support your campaign? So I'd ask that people can visit my website, which is alforga.com. My last name is two letters. It's very short. A-U, just like the periodic <laughs> table symbol for gold, because I will be headed to the gold dome once I get elected. <laughs> alforga.com. So not only there, you can get to know me a little bit and my story, my history, um, you know, my CV, whatever. These things are important to doctors, right? But there's also ways to sign up for updates, um, to volunteer to do voter outreach in the form of easy, low-impact things that you can do from your house safely from your home, like writing postcards or making calls. There's also a way to donate monetarily to the campaign so we can have enough funds to win this primary 
in June and also go on to win the general election in November. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. So do you have any final thoughts? I think my final thought is that um, it's never been more apparent than right now. The value of having leaders with real expertise in healthcare and public health in the state legislature to help guide scientific data-driven policy that affects every one of us. And this has been my campaign platform since the beginning. I've been running on this exact platform before the coronavirus, and it's actually unusual because now it seems like the world has kind of caught up to the importance of that campaign, and it just makes it a little bit more evident and easier to communicate that importance of having people in that role with that level of expertise, bringing it to uh, the places it's needed. I view my role as physician as an act of service, as many of us do, and I would like to bring that sensibility of service and my decades of experience to the state capitol next year so I can continue serving my patients and my community the best way I know how. Well, thank you. Dr. Al, thank you so much for taking time. I know you were coming from, from, from uh, treating patients and, and today, and so thank you for everything that you're doing, and thank you for making time for us. And best wishes uh, as the primary election is June 9th. So just so that um, everybody out there knows, June 9th is the primary election. So be sure to vote uh, for Dr. Al. Absolutely. No, I just want to re-encourage people that the safest way to vote is by mail so that if you have not requested an absentee ballot, you can certainly do that now. And uh, it's a good public health measure as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, I would also like to thank and applaud the other heroic, heroic physicians and allied healthcare professionals and staff for everything that they're doing every day uh, to protect all of us. Uh, from everybody at MAG, thanks for watching, and we'll catch up with you next time on Top Docs. Thank you. Thanks for watching this episode of Top Docs. Please share this program with your colleagues and family and friends. Remember to follow MAG on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget, you can get past episodes of the show at mag.org backslash top docs. From everybody at MAG, we look forward to catching up with you on our next episode of Top Docs.